there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. If you're a person of faith and you would love to find a way to build a career while deepening your own spiritual life, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is someone who has done just that and is a board-certified chaplain who's worked in education, the nonprofit health world, and in 2018, he became founder and president of a nonprofit whose mission is to help all of us to feel more comfortable talking about and documenting our end-of-life wishes. And if you're in your 20s, this is an episode you won't want to miss, because as you'll hear in a few minutes from my guest, Zach Willette, He believes that you're never too young or too healthy to get prepared for death. But before I introduce you to Zach, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's Time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that we blast out on Mondays to give you a sneak peek at the new episodes and the professionals we're going to be featuring that week. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time4coffee.org and the sign-up box is right there on the homepage. Now, my friends, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my wonderful next guest is Zach Willette, a board-certified chaplain who's guided thousands of people as they navigated through both life and death experiences with a background in education, international work, and experience serving people in two of Chicago's most intense ER and trauma centers. Zach understands the power of communication, and he brings a perspective of inclusion and diversity to his work. Zach co-founded Allay Care in 2018 out of a deep belief that life is beautiful, And because death is inescapably a part of our lives, death should have beauty and dignity in it as well. Before co-founding Allay Care, Zach served as head of spiritual care for Ascension. That's the nation's largest nonprofit health system. Zach, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you still caffeinated on dark chocolate and ready to go? (laughs) I am. Thank you. And I have my, my, my beverage of choice, which is hot water. Delicious, delicious hot Oh, water. man, you are a wild and crazy guy, aren't you, Zach? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say you're a lot healthier because you're drinking hot water, right? To each their own, you know? Oh, exactly. Whatever works. I am, I am so good. There are times, actually, I have done the hot water thing, too, so I'm just teasing you. I want you to know I have had a number of firsts on this show. I'm actually, as we do this recording, I am fast approaching my 200th episode. Wow, congratulations. Thank you. And not only are you the first chaplain I have had the pleasure to interview, but you're also the first person whose career is focused on helping people think through and talk about and document death, the end of life process. Mm. And so... I was thinking maybe we could start our conversation today by helping our young listeners better understand what inspired you to start Olay Care and what Olay actually does. 
So the best way to answer that is actually to tell a story. Um, is that okay? Absolutely. So this this is a story that came from when I was working in Chicago. I'm in Minneapolis, Minnesota now, and I was hospital chaplain, and this was actually a 24-hour shift that I was doing in-house. Everyone leaves at 5 p.m., all the other chaplains, and they forward their pagers to me. So I end up covering the whole hospital. I remember walking into one room on the intensive care unit and like hearing the sound of the ventilator and just noticing the, the harshness of the fluorescent lights. And the family that was gathered around the patient, a young patient, I'd like to mention, they just had this exhaustion that was like a heavy cloak that they couldn't take off. It made their movements slow and their anger quick. They wanted to do the right thing. And, and so did the frustrated doctors and the frazzled nurses. But no one knew what the right thing was. The patient had never said anything about his wishes or even what made his life meaningful in the first place. But on that same ICU unit, that same night, I went to a different room. They had the same ventilator rattling, but this time the sound was outdone by some Sam Cooke albums that the family had on repeat. This family had the same sadness as the first room, but right next to their sadness was and their exhaustion was a quiet kind of joy. He told me, she said this time would come, Chaplain Zach. She told us what to do, and she told us why we had to do it. I'm going to miss her with every bone in my body, but we're going to send her on wrapped in love. Both patients died that night. Both of them well-loved, both of them well-cared for. As chaplain, I had the privilege of holding hands in both rooms, hearing stories in both rooms, handing out Kleenex and terrible hospital coffee and cups of cold water in both rooms. We signed the same paperwork. We discussed the same practicalities. But I noticed that the walk to the elevator was not the same for these two families. Did we do the right thing was etched deep on every face in that first family. And they knew there were more tough choices, more tough decisions to come. The second family, they, they had different questions. What did we do with her tomato plants? They said to each other. That's basically the only thing she didn't tell us. One of the hardest things that I saw when I was a full-time chaplain was also one of the most preventable. Families racked with guilt because they didn't know what to do for someone who suddenly or sometimes not so suddenly couldn't speak for themselves. So I've launched a lay to prevent that. And we listen to people, young people, old people, healthy people, sick people, anywhere in between. We help them name not just their wishes, medical, logistical, personal, but also the values behind those wishes. Because sometimes wishes can't be honored, but values always can. The people that we've served so far tell us it is already making a difference for them and for their loved ones. Because it turns out that even just talking about the reality of our someday death helps us to live this day more alive, more present, and more at peace. What a powerful story that was, Zach. How old was the young person in that first room? So obviously I can't tell all the details because of wanting to protect the family's privacy, but this was a gentleman in his late 20s or maybe early 30s. Okay. So not a child. Not a child. Nope. Yeah, for sure. That is, while very young, Mm -hmm. 
I think maybe for somebody, I'm thinking I have a 15-year-old, like talking with him about end of life would really seem very premature. I'm not saying that something couldn't befall him. Of course it could. So at what age do you think, Mm -hmm. Zach, you should start having this kind of conversation? So this is, I'm so glad you brought this up because I was also a chaplain for the pediatric intensive care unit. And often there was this impulse that we needed to protect the patients and also the siblings of the patients from the idea that someone might die. Uh, That's one of the cultural norms that I want to change. Kids understand death. They see ants on the playground that die. They see video game characters that die. They see leaves on a tree that die. They are actually more connected, usually kids are, to the natural cycle of life, not just the Lion King circle of life song, but also that. They're often more connected than we are. So there's actually no wrong time. And we're actually working on building a process for kids to talk about their own death and dying because they're already curious about it. There was actually an interesting article in New York Times about a month and a half ago, maybe. The headline was, why do four-year-olds or why does my four-year-old ask so many questions about death? And it was a great response. It was like a parenting section, I think. And it was a great response, including talking to some people who study death. And talking about how natural it is for kids to see it and to talk about it. So I would genuinely say there is no wrong age. If a kid's talking, that kid can talk about death. So for our young listeners, Zach, who are in college or maybe recently graduated from college or in grad school, what should they do with respect to preparing for their eventual death, hopefully many, many, many years from now. Sure. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully decades from now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Such a great question. Number one thing everyone should do is appoint a healthcare agent. Different states call it different things. Sometimes it's called a durable power of attorney for healthcare. Sometimes it's called a healthcare representative or a surrogate or an agent, but it's the person who will be your voice for healthcare. If ever you can't be your own voice. Scenario people mostly think of as like, oh, if I'm in a car accident and the emergency room, where again, I worked for years and years, they need to, or the trauma center, they need some decisions made. Here's a person who can say, oh, I know what Zach wants. I'm his healthcare agent. But there's also more mundane times, like if you're under anesthesia for a small procedure and something happens where a decision needs to be made and you can't be your own voice, you need someone else who doesn't just say, well, this is what I want to do. They're like, oh no, this is what Andrea wants. Like, I'm her voice. I, I know her values because she told me. I know her stances on these things because she told me. And every state in the country has forms you can find online. Just Google your state and healthcare agent, and the forms don't require a lawyer. Some states do require a notary public, but you can usually find that at a bank or some, most offices will have it. And absolutely everybody of every age, everywhere <laughs> should have not just one healthcare agent, not just one person to be their voice, but a backup and a backup, backup. You should at least pick three people. And you, and it's not a popularity contest. Don't pick the most, your favorite people. Pick somebody who is informed about your wishes, and I would add, and the values behind your wishes. Someone who is level-headed in a crisis, and someone who is reliable. First step for everybody. So, allay, I should have mentioned, means to unburden. Yeah. That is your goal. This is what you have on Olay's website. And what you've also made clear is that death and dying are topics that are not easy for us 
to talk about. So how sure. do you help the people that come to LA to spell out, to tease out mm-hmm. what they want in terms of their end of life wishes? And is there a yeah. fee for this service? We do charge a fee because we have a team of, of trained experts who walk you through what ends up being three hours of facilitated conversation. Plus, we send you a whole bunch of resources based on what you say matters to you, what's important to you, what you want to learn more about. And we customize the entire process to you. And really importantly, it's not just for you. So there's three conversations, very cleverly called conversations one, two, and three. Um, And conversation three, you tell us who else should be a part of the conversation. So it's often loved ones. It's for sure going to be your healthcare agent like we were just talking about so that they can say, oh, I was there when Andrea said she wants this and I didn't understand. And the chaplain who ran the whole thing said, well, do you want to ask clarifying questions? And I did. And now I understand what Andrea's wishes are and why and, you know, and so on and so forth. So they're part of that. But if you have a, a spiritual leader, you want to be a part of that. If you're part of a community that's a community leader, you want that person to be a part of the conversation, you get to choose. We did one um, conversation for a gentleman who lives in Tennessee. He gave me permission to share his story. His daughter lives in Peru. So through the miracle of the internet, we got her online and we had such an incredible conversation. I can go into later if you're curious to know more about it. But to answer your question, that's why we charge a fee because I only hire really excellent social workers and chaplains to facilitate these conversations. After that part, now I forgot what the first part was. Oh, the first part. It was too long of a question. I'm sorry about that. But it was, why is the whole subject of death and dying outside of the obvious that it, you know, it's something we can't control for the most part. And we see it as final. We're not going to see unless you believe in life after death that you will be reunited with your loved ones. But from your expert perch... Yeah. What's all the Michigas that's wrapped up with it? <laughs> yeah. So we actually do an entire workshop just on this topic called The Seven Reasons People Don't Want to Talk About Death and Dying. And then, of course, we sneak in nine reasons to do it anyway. So recognizing that there's a whole workshop I could do, I won't, I won't do it. I'll just highlight maybe just the first two that we talk about in the workshop. And, and one is this magical thinking that if we just don't talk about it, it won't, it won't happen. Or there are some cultures that believe that if you do talk about it, you're going to kind of hasten it. You're going to sort of bring it on by talking about it. That comes across a couple of different ways. Like people will say, oh, just don't talk like that. Or, oh, you don't have anything to worry about. Or we even do it for the weather. Like it's a nice day. Oh, don't jinx it. You know, we had this kind of magical thinking. But the truth is that just like talking about getting pregnant doesn't get you pregnant. Talking about death doesn't, uh, doesn't make you die. And then the second major reason is death is all kinds of things that we don't like. It's final. It's not optional. We don't like things that are final and not optional. It's surrender. It's an ending. It's unknowable. And for all those reasons, it's really uncomfortable for people. But here's the thing. As soon as you help people just gently push past those initial, you know, sort of discomforts, every single person we've talked to in, you know, the people we serve, even the people who just come to our free workshops, Everybody, once you scratch the surface, they are so relieved to talk about this because they've been thinking about it and they actually do have wishes and they do have values behind those wishes. They just haven't had a chance to name it. And I mean that 
for people who think that they're near the end of their life and for people who think that they're decades away from the end of their life. In, in our pilot phase of our nonprofit, very deliberately, we made sure that half the people we served were in their 20s. And they had such great feedback and they loved it as much as people who were in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. Interesting. Yeah. So Zach, I would love to pivot to the other hat you wear as a board-certified chaplain and just get, if I could, maybe a quick insight into what inspired you to become a chaplain and take it from there. That's a really good question. So I grew up in a a big family. Um, My mom and dad were um, foster parents for a whole bunch of kids before I was born and then also when I was really young. Then we had four cousins who lived with us um, while I was growing up and two refugees from Vietnam that were part of our family. And my parents also speak pretty openly about the grief that they had when um, not one but two sets of twins died, one shortly after birth and another were stillborn. So I think I grew up in a, in a household sort of oriented towards helping other people and orienting, oriented towards, hey, we got to integrate this grief, people. Grief is all around. It's not going away. Let's engage it. It's another long story, but I, when I lived in Antarctica, I had a pretty serious spinal injury when I was snowmobiling back from a penguin colony, which I know sounds made up, but it's actually what happened. And that was my own experience before I was a chaplain of bumping into kind of the limitations of my body and the limitations of my even identity at that point. And kind of all of those things wove together that when I was looking for how I wanted to make a difference in the world... And people kept mentioning it to me and I was like brushing it off, but they were persistent and I was eventually open to the idea. And so I tried it. I did an internship as a hospital chaplain and I was in a neurology ward and I've always been fascinated by the human body and especially the human brain. And that summer I was hooked. I was like to get invited into people's and into their lives at these raw moments is such a privilege and to help reorient them to their own resilience whether that means using religious language or not. In a conversation, a chaplain in a hospital is never the first person to use religious language. We always follow the lead of the person that we're serving, whether that's a patient or a family member or even a staff member. Reorienting them to their resilience, however they understand it, is just a huge privilege. And I loved every day that I got to do it. Oh, my goodness. What a story. Thank you so much for sharing that. Sure. So... Could you elaborate just a bit? I feel like this is a super ignorant question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What faith is your, do I say, denomination as a chaplain? And what does Mm -hmm. that mean if it's in a Christian faith, how that works with respect to the priests and others? Sure. Great. No, it's not an ignorant question. Often it's people's first question. So you mentioned that I'm a board certified chaplain. So to become board certified, you have to have a master's degree. You have to have a year and a half of on-the-job training, that internship that I mentioned, plus a residency. And then you have to serve kind of supervised for a while, and then you go before a committee. It's a pretty intense process to become board certified. But I'm going to use that as sort of an analog for the whole process because it helps understand the rigor that our profession has when that's the direction you go. I should mention one of the tricky things about the word chaplain is that it's also used by volunteers. People who, who don't have professional training, who don't have certification, just have a good heart and want to be of service to others. The tricky thing is, I mentioned, people are welcoming us into their lives at a really raw time. And even with the best of intentions, you can actually do damage. 
And so I think it's very important that only professionals um, and people who uphold the ethical standards and who met the qualifications for this work do it. That said, to answer your question about denomination, because a board-certified chaplain is an employee of the hospital, so we'll just talk about healthcare chaplaincy. There's also like campus chaplaincy, which is different. You don't have to be board-certified usually for that. There's corporate chaplaincy, so being at work, actually. There's prison chaplaincy. There's, there's all kinds of different things, but I'm just going to talk about healthcare chaplaincy. We are a hospital employee, and so we serve whomever comes to us. So in fact, when I was chaplaining, if somebody asked me what my denomination was, it usually was a sign that I was taking up a little bit too much oxygen in the room because it really should be all about them and about their orientation, their faith tradition. Sometimes they were just asking to, to ask like, hey, do you get me? You know, I'm not Muslim, but if I had a Muslim patient or a Muslim staff member that I was serving, and I, if I knew ahead of time that they were Muslim, I would enter the room with my hand over my heart and say, assalamu alaikum. It's a way of indicating to them that I wished them peace and I was aware of their tradition. I didn't pretend to be an imam. I was still who I was, but I wanted to show hospitality and show um, respect for their tradition. If I don't know their tradition, then I'm not going to guess. I'll just ask if they have any tradition. It's a really important question. There are chaplains who are priests, but I'm not. There are chaplains who are imams or who, who are rabbis or who are ordained in traditions that don't use titles like rabbi, priest, and imam. But you don't have to be ordained in a tradition in order to be a chaplain. And like I said, we serve everybody. And so kind of our own faith is what keeps us sustained in the work. It's how we're recharging all the time. But yeah, it used to be that only Catholic priests would see Catholic patients. Those days have been gone for decades. So do you identify with a particular faith? Yeah. So I grew up Catholic. And when I started grad school, I introduced myself as a lowercase c Catholic because the word just means universal. And that's kind of my understanding of the divine. That's my understanding of that which we point to with the word God. But through my studies, I've been surprised to sort of reclaim my capital C. I am definitely Catholic, but I'm very progressive. So I, I, don't, I don't agree with the church's teaching on every last thing. But I've made the decision to, to stay connected to that tradition for me. Got it. Well, thank you for laying that out. That was really helpful. I am curious, Zach... For those young people who, like you, may be inspired to let their professional lives be guided by their faith, yeah. who want their professional lives to be guided by their faith, why should they consider a place like Olay or a healthcare system or, for that matter, a prison? Mm -hmm. Now, you didn't work in the prison. You worked in the healthcare system for years but where they would have the opportunity to provide spiritual and emotional support, whether it's to patients or whether it's to prisoners? Uh, it's such a good question. And I feel like <laughs> I feel like it deserves an hour long answer. So here's a good time to use the language of like vocation or, or calling. I'm tempted to say you should do this work if you can't not do it. I've heard writers and artists say the same thing. I think that it really is a calling. I think it really is a gift that you've been given or that you uncover in yourself. You know, you can use whatever language you want, but it's there. It's one that you want to put into practice in a humble way. So this is a sneaky way around your question, but I kind of want to answer who should not go into this career. Mm -hmm. um, you should not go into this career if you want to fix people. 
If you're like, I have all the answers, everybody else is missing out, they're really confused, I'll come in and I'll remove their confusion. If you think that's a calling, I would invite you to some deep reflection. (laughs) Because I don't think that's how the universe works. I think the the creator uh, has given everybody a little corner of the truth with the hope that we would share. And I think we need to approach it with humility and with, you know, how can I, what can I learn? How can I serve? And if, if that's your orientation, then there is great work for you to do in this field. But you need to go about it in a way that is sustainable. And you need to know how you can keep your own well flowing. And not only giving, 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 you've got to be able to receive. And a lot of folks end up in helping professions and then burn out because they thought they were connected to a deep, unending well. And then they discovered that it dried up. I actually do a whole workshop on, on burnout and stamina because I think that's a real big concern in our time now. But that's, that's for a different conversation. Okay. Well, I'm kind of curious to hear mm-hmm. how you have managed to prevent burnout other than your love of dark chocolate. <laughs> right. Dark chocolate is a help, but it is not. Uh, it will not heal you. It will only help you along the way. Yeah. So two answers come to mind. One, when I was a little tadpole chaplain um, in, my, in my internship, I was actually really hooked and emotionally sort of caught, not by the people, I should say not only by the people that I saw, but I got hooked by the people that I didn't get to see. So every day, my internship, for the time that I was going to be on my unit, I would get a list of, you know, a census, a list of all the people who were there. And some of the nurses and doctors would help me prioritize and be like on triage. They'd be like, this person could really use a visit. This person needs a visit, but they're at, you know, getting a CT scan, come back in an hour, that kind of stuff. And I couldn't, of course, see everybody. And at the end of the day, I would really be like emotionally and spiritually just feeling so stirred up that I hadn't been able to see these people. And so my wise supervisor, my, my, my trainer, my educator, my helper people helped me come up with this ritual of, and I had to go really slow, Andrea, through the list and take a deep breath with every name of the person I saw, hold them for just a second, and then whew, breathe them out. And then I'd go to the list of people that I didn't see. Same thing, every name, breathe it in, hold it for a second and breathe it out, reminding myself in the breathing out that these people are in much bigger hands than mine. I'm not their savior. I'm just their chaplain. I'm just an, someone who to accompany them along the way. But that was a really important way for me to avoid burnout. And I eventually, when I was no longer a tadpole chaplain, I got really efficient at that. And I could do a whole page in a single breath. <laughs> <laughs> Either that or your lung capacity just grew. Ooh, maybe both. both. (laughs) See, I'm surprised because I thought you were going to talk about Mm -hmm. the yoga that you do, the weightlifting, the trekking. Is that part of it as well? Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. You've got to remind yourself that there's a bigger story than any one story, including your own story, right? That's why I like to trek, hiking a mountain. So climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, right? 19,340 feet, I think. And the tallest freestanding mountain in the world, if what I was told is accurate. It was a really big, it was five days up and back. It was an amazing experience. And the whole time I felt so small. And that's essential. We need, we need to feel small. Sometimes we can feel small because we're like up against huge problems and we feel small and it doesn't make us feel good. And sometimes we can be feeling small because we're like standing in front of the ocean or just standing in front of a tall building or standing in front of a beautiful piece of art and feel small. We need those experiences as a way of avoiding burnout. 
I often talk about singe out. So not full on burnout, but just when you get singed around the edges, you know, when you start to notice the joy of your work diminishing, when you laugh less, that's a sign that you're starting to get singed out. And that's a sign to go to someone you trust and be like, hey, I want to avoid burnout. Can you help? Because none of us can do it on our own. I said, I said there were two things I did for burnout. I'll try to make the second one shorter. I changed jobs, Andrea. I loved, I loved my job, but I knew it was not sustainable for me to do it anymore. And, and that was really hard because I got really, you know, as a son of a farmer, like I thought my job and my identity were the same thing. I had to learn to decouple those and to leave a job that I loved because I didn't want to get burned out. And I, I was proud that when I told people that I was leaving, they were shocked. And when I confided in some of them that I was worried that I was seeing some really warning signs of burnout, they were even more shocked. And I was super relieved because I was afraid they were going to say, yeah, we've been meaning to talk to you about that. <laughs> so it was good. A sign that I did at the right time. Well, thank you for sharing that. I think that's really important for young people to have that front of mind and not get to the point, whether it's through their studies and extracurriculars and the part-time or sometimes full-time jobs that they're trying to hold down, even before they get into the working world, yep. to try to carve out a little time so that they aren't, whether singed or burned, mm -hmm. to the point that they're not able to be their best selves. Yeah, it's so true. Like we, we live in a culture where we sort of, Brene Brown writes about this, we wear our exhaustion like a status symbol. And that is so wrongheaded. It doesn't help us. It doesn't help one another. It doesn't help us be a beloved community like MLK called us to be, right? Like we need to be nurturing one another. There's a great Instagram account called the NAP Ministry, like take a nap, NAP, the NAP Ministry. And the woman who runs it, she calls herself the Bishop of Nap. I've not met her, but I so admire what she's doing because she's reminding us how essential it is to rest and that it's countercultural to rest. And it's actually anti-white supremacy to rest. And it's all these things. She's really doing such good work, helping us pay attention to the call for rest. We are better when we go back into work rested. We are better when we go into our non-work lives rested. I can't say enough about it. There's another book I'd recommend called Why We Sleep. It's 20 years of sleep research condensed into one pretty thick book that's really compelling about taking care of our bodies with rest. Definitely. There is also an episode of Time for Coffee. It's an interview that I did with a psychologist and with somebody who helps people prepare for taking standardized tests. And Dr. Bill Sticksrud is the psychologist and he talks about the research that is out there that documents how even missing one night of sleep. So for those of you who pull all-nighters, it's equivalent to drunk driving. Yeah. That is how messed up your brain gets. So I completely agree with you that it is so important whether to take cat naps or a nap or just go to bed an hour earlier. Yeah. And just because we can bounce back from those things doesn't mean we should. <laughs> they still come at a cost. We may not see the cost for a while, but those all-nighters come at a cost. Definitely. So, Zach, I would like to flash back to when yeah. you were an undergrad at Vanderbilt University, mm. where you got a BS in elementary mm. education and service learning. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? 
totally new and I was totally wrong. <laughs> so yeah. what was it? <laughs> so I, I knew that I was going to teach and I wanted to teach service learning is this notion that we learn best when our learning is meaningful to us personally, but also meaningful to our community. So being able to use classroom learning to do community service, that's kind of the it in a nutshell. It's more complex than that, but that's because it's actually an epistemology and a philosophy and a pedagogy all wrapped into one. But yeah, I knew I was going to teach. And right out of college, I did the job fair thing. I was applying for jobs. And I kind of freaked out a little bit. I couldn't decide where I wanted to teach. And so instead, I actually said no to all. I just stopped pursuing all the jobs I was pursuing, despite the encouragement that I had, I had gotten, and instead took a fellowship to study hunger and malnutrition in the United States. And it was six months of field work, and it was six months of policy work. My field work was on the Thalma'atham Nation, an amazing and both joy-inspiring and anger-inspiring place uh, and community, amazing people in south-central Arizona, about an hour and a half west of Tucson. It's the second largest reservation in the country. It's the size of the state of Connecticut. If you look on a map, it'll often say Papago, but they call themselves Thalma'atham. It means desert people. So I, I was there and I got to I got to do teaching, but I also got to do community organizing. And I got to learn about sustainable food systems. And I got to learn about shifting cultural norms. And I got to be humbled. And I got to learn about silence. That's actually a place that I learned a ton about silence, which served me really well when I became a chaplain. And I was okay being silent with someone, thanks to my time on the, on the Native American nation. And what, what I learned from Danny Lopez and Verna Enos and other of my mentors when I, when I lived there. Immediately, I was wrong about how I was going to use my degree. I did go back to teach on that nation, taught kindergarten. Then I taught high school at a college prep high school that I helped start that integrated the tribal language and the tribal history into all the different courses. So I was partially right about education, but I had no idea at that point when I was an undergrad that later I would become a chaplain. There was 10 years between my undergrad and grad degree. I'm really glad I took 10 years between those times. I'm a, people talk about a gap year. I had a gap decade. I'm really glad I did. Every job I've ever had is one I would happily go back to, but they've also led to these new and exciting jobs. Absolutely. And I haven't really landed on the right metaphor yet. Maybe you can help me with this. But okay. I think that our lives often unfold on the professional side. And sometimes it begins when we're kids and other times it begins when we're young adults in college. But every experience we have, it's almost like we're bees pollinating different flowers. <laughs> and sure. some of the pollen invariably sticks to our, <laughs> you know, our little insect legs. Yeah. And what you've just laid out, I actually see both from the time that you worked at the National Coalition for the Homeless, as well as the time that you worked in the school system and then started your own school and then moved into chaplaining and healthcare. And now with LA Care Services, mm -hmm. feels very much like you were that honeybee pollinating, <laughs> picking up pollen to the point where, wow, you've got this unbelievable hive yeah. that is full of all of this delicious honey. Yeah, nourishing. I mean, honey is great, right? Because it's not just sweet. It's also nourishing. It's also antiseptic, I think. It's, yeah, it's pretty amazing. And it stays forever. It's, it doesn't need preservatives. That's a good, that's a good metaphor. And I like it, you know, that you said invariably some of the pollen sticks. Bees' legs are designed to have pollen stick to them. 
right? And I think we are designed to have experiences stick with us. This goes back to what we were talking a little bit about really engaging our suffering. You know, there's wisdom, there's good stuff in there. If we're willing to really explore our experiences, it's hard work. It's not easy. It's often done best with a trusted friend or a trusted professional. But exploring those suffering experiences is so, it's so fruitful. It's so important. So two final time for coffee questions, Zach. I try to ask all of my guests about a time in their professional life when they struggled. Some Mm. of us, like me, I was fired twice in my 40s. They Mm. turned out to be unbelievable gifts. (laughs) And most important in your story is how you came through the other side and maybe a lesson you learned in the process. And I apologize, I'm right next to a construction site. So they just (laughs) picked up the hammer again. So I apologize to our listeners. No worries. I mean, construction is a good metaphor too, right? (laughs) It is. It's noisy, it's messy, but we like the results, you know? Yeah, I love this question because I think too often we see people who have titles like president or titles like founder or titles like whatever impressive title you might have. And we think, well, they've never been vulnerable. And this question is so good because you you make us go to our vulnerable places and, and talk about it. And the truth is, you know, I've had the privilege of working on four different continents. And I've had really rough patches in each place. And actually, frankly, in each job. And I knew you were going to ask this question. Thanks for giving me a heads up <laughs> by email. So I prepared and I actually, I was like, I can tell how many stories you want, Andrew. I can tell you lots of stories. But the one I settled on was actually the job I had just before I launched Alay. And there's a really particular reason I think this is helpful for your listeners, perhaps. I hope it's helpful for them to hear it. And this is the reason. It was a great job. And I had the perfect CV, had the perfect resume for the person to have that job. I got lots of very kind feedback. Um, and I'm a teacher, so I don't trust feedback unless it's very specific. You know, like if someone's just like, oh, you're great. I'm like, mm, it doesn't matter. But when they're like, when you did this thing and this consequence happened because of it, that was really strong. I'm like, okay, that, that's feedback you can't brush away, right? That's when I was teaching, I would always use specific feedback like that for my students. But despite all these things, I knew that job wasn't a fit. It, it, to go back to Reverend Howard Thurman saying, don't ask what the world needs, ask what makes you come alive, because what the world needs is people who have come alive. This job was a great job, but it didn't, it didn't make me come alive. Even though I tried to convince myself it was, right? Like my head was very busy being like, well, here's all the silver linings of this job, or here's all the ways you should stick with it for a little bit longer. My heart and my gut knew that it wasn't a fit. I wasn't doing damage to other people or myself, but it wasn't for my fullest flourishing. And so it was a big risk to give it up. I didn't know for sure that this LA thing was going to work out. But I got to tell you that as soon as I knew it was the right thing to do, as soon as I really tuned in to my gut and to my heart and really to my body, not just my, not just my very loud and very quick mind, as soon as I knew it was the right thing to do, then I had to do it. And I'm, I'm super grateful that I had the support of friends and family and colleagues and a boss and, and a healthcare organization that supported me to do it. You know, courage is what we call it when the fear is real. And so is the decision to do the right thing. And I think all of us are called to make courageous decisions. It doesn't mean we don't feel the fear. 
fear can be useful data, actually. One of my mentors taught me that fear is actually a pretty good teacher, but it's a terrible guide. So we should let fear teach us what it will, but we shouldn't let it guide us. And I don't know. I, I, the last thing I'll say about this is like it was a really rough patch because it was months long and I just felt worse and worse. I wasn't sleeping well. My friends and family noticed that I wasn't myself. Really, I felt like it wasn't a good enough answer to be like, I'm not a fit for my job. That seems like a pretty obnoxious thing to say when everyone knew that it was a great job to have. I, I did a workshop on this as well with a colleague of mine um, who left an amazing job with the White House. And people were like, why would you leave that job? And she and I both wanted people to know that you have permission to be awesome in ways other than you were told you were going to be awesome. That's the lesson that I took from this particular rough patch. I hope other people get to benefit from that as well. I hope they hear that, that yes, you can get great feedback and you can believe that you're doing good work, but if it's not ultimately a fit, you have permission to be awesome in a different way, in a different place, and you'll be glad of it. There is so much that you said, Zach, that is awesome (laughs) (laughs) and that really resonates with me. And I think the idea that you should listen to your heart and your gut, that those two organs, in addition to your brain, and because the brain is connected to the gut, the gut is known as the second brain, like that feeling, the butterflies or that anxiousness that you feel is actually real. So much you need to listen to that. And really, with all due respect to other colleagues or friends or even family, this is your life. This is your life. You need to live it the way that it's most authentic for you. And the other thing that I loved about what you said, Zach, is the fear and the idea that you need courage to go in a direction at times and leaping into the unknown, leaping into a place where you don't necessarily have a safety net takes courage. But I will say just from my own experience of having done that time and again, and that Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that I didn't fall flat on my face, (laughs) you can Mm -hmm. truly experience some of the highest highs and the deepest fulfillment from going for it. From authenticity, right? There's this great Jewish saying um, from Rabbi Zuza, and I forget what century he was alive, but he said, when I die... They won't ask me, Zuza, why were you not Moses? They will say, Zuza, why were you not Zuza? Oscar Wilde said it a different way. He, he said, be yourself. Everyone else is taken. <laughs> <laughs> right. And you, you know, know what? I, yeah. I completely agree. Yeah. I'm actually trying to look up when Rabbi Zuza was alive, but I think it might take me. It, it's going <laughs> to distract me from answering to your question because sure. I feel in some ways, before we get to the last question, we are coming full circle to the whole mission of lay in helping us to prepare for end of life. As you live your life in a way that is deeply fulfilling, and trust me, not every job is going to be deeply fulfilling. And sometimes you just have to be practical. And especially in the beginning years, as you're building your resume, you may be taking jobs that aren't deeply fulfilling. And frankly, that's okay. You'll still be learning skills. 
But the whole point is we only go around once unless you follow a different spiritual practice, such as the Hindus, you believe that this is it. So why not go for it? Why not put yourself out there and fall flat on your face? Maybe you need to prepare for that. Maybe you need to save a little money and then jump into the unknown. But my goodness, it is a far more exciting and potentially fulfilling way yeah. to spend your days on this earth. It's, it's so true. It is so true. And that's actually why one of the pieces of language we use for LA, we, the question we ask is not like, what do you want it to be like when you die? Yeah. <laughs> we say, how do you want to live at the end of your life? Like all of us are going to have an end of our life. Some of us won't know when that, none of us know when it's going to come. Some of us won't have an extended end of our life. Our life will just come to an end quickly. It's roll the dice. We don't know. But if you can know, how do you want to live then? And what we find is that people are going through this process. And again, people in their 20s, all the way up to people in their 70s. I'm going through our process. At the end of it, they're clearer about how they want to live when they're not at the end of their life. They're clearer about their values. They feel literally more alive because they've gone through this process and, and contemplated it and really articulated what it is that what matters. Because when you're talking about death, you're really talking about life. And we just think it's such a privilege to be with people in those conversations. And there's, you, there's never a wrong time to do it. Now, you're going to change what you want over time. And that's why we encourage people to update their plans with us every now and then or update their plans on their own. They don't have to come back to us. They can do it on their own. But it's never too early to start articulating both the wishes and the why behind the wishes. Great. Final time for coffee question, Zach. If you could go back to Vanderbilt and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom that you have now, mm. what advice would you give yourself? Yeah, that's good. I would probably use this great phrase from St. Francis de Sales, who was born in what is now France, who's alive around 1600 and a little bit of a mystic. And he said, be who you are and be that well. So it's another way of saying what you and I were just talking about, Andrea. But I, I think when I was in college, I was too focused on the well part, like doing well, <laughs> you know? Not that I cared too much about my grades, but I certainly cared about what other people thought of me. I was really run by what other people thought of me. <laughs> One of my spiritual directors put it this way. He said, it sounds like you're taking your temperature in other people's mouths. <laughs> Isn't that perfect? Oh my God, that is awesome. Yeah. And that's and that's what I was doing. And and if I could go back and like sit down, like, you know, 18-year-old Zach, I would just be like, dude, relax. <laughs> be who you are and be that well. I know like for part of me, that would mean coming out of the closet. I didn't come out of the closet as gay until I was 27. And I just, you know, I try not to have regrets, but I think, gosh, how would my college experience have been different if I could have lived into the sexuality that I understand was a gift from God. You know, it was God's choice, not mine. And for the longest time, I was like, God, that was a terrible gift. I'm never going to use this gift you gave me. So, uh, you know, that's part of being who you are and be that well. But also like, yeah, I would not have cared so much about impressing other people. I would have doubled my efforts to just enjoy being who I get to be. Well, 
my goodness, talk about a wonderful way to end the interview, Zach, with that beautiful testimonial. And Mm -hmm. we should also let our Time for Coffee listeners know that we are doing this interview. Little did I know that it would be super relevant for us during Pride Month. So how exciting. It is clearly one of your many superpowers, Zach. You are such a gifted and beautiful human. I feel so grateful to our mutual friend, Michael McCarg, for having introduced us and for you enlightening me on so many things that I was not aware of. Yeah, the the tie-in to Pride makes a lot of sense, right? Because we started talking about, you know, shifting cultural norms. And the original Pride was, people are saying Pride was a riot. It was chaotic. And it was the only way people had to express themselves. James Baldwin, I think, was the one who said a riot is the vocabulary of the, oh, no, he had a better way to put it. But it's, 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 the, it's one of the ways that rage can be expressed. And we have shifted norms now by 2019 where for the most part, we understand that there are multiple sexualities and they're all equally valid. They're normal variants occurring within, <laughs> within nature. And that cultural norm has shifted, but we still have work to do because there are you know, 30 plus states where I can be fired because I'm gay. So we have, we have more work to do. We have more cultural norms to shift and we have to let our laws catch up with justice the way that our language ha- is improving too. So eloquently said. Zach, thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. I hope our listeners will check out alay.com. That's A-L-L-A-Y care dot O-R-G, alaycare.org. Yep, we're a .org, not a .com. There you go. Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you. Mm -hmm. And just start the conversation, whether with Alay Care trained professionals, with your loved ones, with your friends, and start thinking about the end of your life as a way to live a more fulfilled life in the here and now. Absolutely. Yeah. Our website's full of resources for folks. You do, I mean, we'd love for you to work with us, but you, there's lots of great stuff you can do on your own just using what's on our, on our website. So please feel free to, to visit. Zach, thank you so much. Andrea, it's a privilege. And thanks to all your listeners for joining us today. Take good care. Be well. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.